This is episode 20 of Ethics and Culture Cast from the Notre Dame Center for Ethics and Culture. Welcome to episode 20 of Ethics and Culture Cast from the Notre Dame Center for Ethics and Culture. I'm Ken Hellenius, the communications specialist at the center. In this episode, we sit down with James Hankins, a professor of Renaissance intellectual history at Harvard University. He is the founder and general editor of the E. Tati Renaissance Library from Harvard University Press, a member of the British Academy, and is the author or editor of over 20 volumes and more than 80 articles, essays, and book chapters. He was a visiting scholar at the center in the spring 2018 semester, where he worked on a monograph entitled The Virtue Politics of the Italian Humanists. Let's head into the center's Marion Short Ethics Library for this week's conversation. sitting here today with Professor James Hankins. He's a professor of Renaissance intellectual history at Harvard University. His main research interests are the history of Renaissance political thought, the history of philosophy, and the history of the classical tradition. He is the founder and general editor of the E. Tati Renaissance Library from Harvard University Press and associate editor of the Catalogus Translationum et Commentariorum. In 2012, he was honored with the Paul Oscar Christeller Lifetime Achievement Award of the Renaissance Society of America. Professor Hankins is a member of the British Academy and is the author or editor of over 20 volumes and more than 80 articles, essays, and book chapters, and is currently finishing a monograph entitled The Virtue Politics of the Italian Humanists. Professor Hankins, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, and thanks for inviting me to come talk. Absolutely. It's a joy to have you with us here in the Center for Ethics and Culture this semester. Um, But tell us a bit about your intellectual journey. Where did you do your studies and and what do you do at Harvard? Well, I was born in Philadelphia, um, brought up by a Christian family. I went to high school in the Philadelphia area. Nothing really unusual about my upbringing, uh, typical suburban upbringing of that period, with one exception, which is that I had very good Latin and Greek, which turned out to be uh, prophetic in a way of what I was going to do. I ended up going to Duke University, and um, I did a lot of music there uh, and a lot of classics. I, at that time, was very impressed by C.S. Lewis. He was one of my early influences. And I, uh, I really admired his beautiful writing, his very clear mind, and his incredible range over, well, the 2,000 years of Western history. And I, I, I think I was trying to get that for myself at Duke in some sort of way. I, I knew that C.S. Lewis himself had taken the Greats course at Oxford, which if you don't know, is, was the great prestigious course at Oxford for undergraduates, in which they did Latin and Greek literature, philosophy, and Roman history. And I essentially tried to create for myself a little greats program at uh, Duke uh, from the uh, people who were there. And it was actually a very good place to go if, with, that, with that intention since uh, there were excellent classes there. And I studied ancient philosophy with a guy named Ed Mahoney, 
who later became a Catholic priest. He's a friend, by the way, of Alistair McIntyre, because Alistair, you might recall, was a duke for a while. Uh, so Ed Mahoney was my teacher in ancient philosophy, and he, I was a big fan of his. He was a very lively, fun teacher. And he suggested I take his other course on medieval philosophy, which is where I first met Aquinas. In fact, I met Augustine, Aquinas, Anselm, Scotus, and Occam. And that alerted me to the fact that the sort of narrative I had been brought up with of Western history, which sees the Middle Ages as kind of a dark period, uh, feudalism, dogmatism of the Catholic Church, the enchained mind, that was really false. Uh, it's nothing that gives you more respect for a philosopher when you can't understand him. And I didn't understand Aquinas very well. Later on, I I studied him quite a lot, and, and I think of him now as a very clear and uh, engaging thinker. But at the time, I was really, really mystified by him. So uh, I ended up gradually moving into the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. That was a period at Duke where they had lots of excellent people in that field. And I was partly drawn there because I realized that uh, the things that I liked to study were very highly valued during the Renaissance. In fact, the humanities themselves were basically invented during the Renaissance. And I realized that this greats course I was trying to reproduce for myself at Duke was a downstream descendant of the humanities that were founded in the Renaissance Italy. So that's how I got fundamentally oriented towards the Italian Renaissance. Ed Mahoney, Father Ed, as he later came to be called, advised me on graduate programs, much to the dismay of my parents who wanted me to become a lawyer. I later discovered, by the way, that the choice between law and humanities was a, was a classic choice in the Renaissance <laughs> and that practically every famous Renaissance humanist you can mention, beginning with Petrarch and Boccaccio, had parents who wanted them to become lawyers and decided to do humanities instead. So I had deep sympathy with that particular life choice. So anyway, uh, Ed Mahoney got me going to Columbia, which was the great Renaissance place to study at the time. I ended up studying with his own teacher, a man named Paul Oscar Christeller, who was uh, one of the German-Jewish refugees who came over during the Nazi period uh, to escape Hitler. And he was a great scholar. Many people consider him one of the great, maybe the greatest Renaissance scholar of the 20th century. So I was very lucky to study with him. And he set my feet upon, feet upon the path of virtue and, and the study of manuscripts and texts and uh, philosophy, Renaissance philosophy. So after finishing there at Columbia, how did you end up at Harvard? And, and what do you do at Harvard? Well, I, it was my first job. I, I received tenure there. And uh, as one of my colleagues said to me, Hankins, when you start at the top, it's a dead-end job. <laughs> so, I, so I've been at Harvard for a long time, 33 years, almost 33 years. And I'm in the history department. We have an intellectual history program in the history department, which is very much um, overbalanced, I would say, towards the modern period. So my job is basically to cover the period from early Greek philosophy down to the 17th century. So I teach everything from from Parmenides to Spinoza. Why? So it's 
my research, of course, is in the Renaissance, as I said, but uh, I enjoy striding up and down the ages. And I always tell my students that they get more centuries per course in my course than any other course at Harvard. <laughs> great value. Then. Yes, they get great value. <laughs> Well, what are you working on this semester as a visiting research fellow at the Center for Ethics and Culture? Well, uh, as you said in the introduction, I'm working on a book that's called The Virtue Politics of the Italian Humanists. Uh, this is an attempt to rewrite the history of Italian political Renaissance political theory, which in previous incarnations has been has been dominated by what's called the Republican hypothesis, where uh, the main thing that seems to be going on in Renaissance political thinkers is an embrace of republicanism. Uh, this goes back to the 1930s. It's been uh, knocked down in a negative way, but there's no positive replacement for it. I had a very critical attitude towards this in the 1990s, wrote a number of articles. And then I was invited to give the Carlyle Lectures at Oxford in 2010. And this forced me to uh, pull together all of my criticisms and say what I positively thought Italian Renaissance political thought was about. And it dawned on me, and this took a long time because uh, I'm a very empirical guy and I, I don't, I'm not the sort of person who stars, starts out with general ideas and then seeks to find evidence for them. But uh, in fact, I usually come to my best ideas after, after – after a thousand false starts. But it suddenly dawned on me that the one thing everybody is talking about, all the humanists talking about in the Renaissance is virtue. And I started to realize this is really the master theme that these guys are worried about. And I started investigating why that was the case. And it turns out that it's really a response to the civilizational crisis of the 14th century, that uh, humanists particularly Petrarch, who really starts this movement off, is really worried about the collapse of politics in general in the mid-14th century. Uh, the, the papacy is in a bad way. It's, it's exiled in Avignon or self-exiled in Avignon. There's a lot of corruption. The Holy Roman Empire, the two great – these two great universal institutions in the Middle Ages are basically um, hollow and empty at, at this period. Italy at the time has a lot of foreign soldiers traveling up and down. There's the Black Death. Uh, it's really a terrible time in the history of Western civilization. I once had a teacher who taught 14th century, and he started a lecture on the 14th century saying, the 14th century was a bad century. <laughs> I said, well, that's really simplistic. Yeah. You know, how can he possibly say something like that? Then, then he went into what happened in the 14th century. and At the end, we're all saying it was a bad century. <laughs> and Petrarch understood this. And, and he really wanted to reconstruct politics, but he had a different – he had a particular way of doing it, which he was inspired to think up by reading the classics, particularly Cicero. Because Cicero lived in a time of great – civilizational crisis for the Roman Empire in the first century BC when Rome was torn apart by civil wars. And Cicero's response to this crisis was to say we have to remoralize Rome, that the old laws and institutions and customs have been harmed, have been gone out of, uh, out of use. Uh, the thing that used to hold our society together is no longer doing that. Everyone's taken up with ambition and, and greed so we have to remoralize the elites, in particular the ruling class. So this is what Petrarch thinks he has to do 
in the Renaissance. And the humanist movement is in essence, a, uh, in, at least in its political aspect and its moral aspect, is trying to improve the moral quality of elites in Renaissance Italy. Uh, it's a kind of meritocracy. A meritoc- they, they promote a kind of meritocracy, which is uh, moral meritocracy. Uh, nowadays, we have techni- what's called technical meritocracy, where people get degrees in policy areas, and they're supposed to know about how to do a healthcare program, that sort of thing. But this sort of meritocracy uh, is aimed at improving wisdom and virtue. Uh, and the way they thought to do this was by reading the classics. Well, literature philosophy and, and the study of the classics generally was going to what, what was going to make change the heart of Renaissance elites and make them realize that that they had to they had to if they wanted their society to stay together at all that they that they the leader society had a responsibility to act well, and the humanists tried to put together a kind of social technology uh, of praise and blame through speeches and histories and invectives. Uh, oratory, in other words, which would hold people to account, uh, raise to them a very high standard of human behavior, but create a kind of um, social movement to embrace embrace classical virtue and wisdom. Was there in this context room for grace and for the, you know, kind of the teaching of the church as well? Oh, yes. Well, um, one thing we've discovered – I think in the last 30 years of research is that all of these people were were Christians in one sense or another. Some of them were very deeply committed Christians like Petrarch, for example. And I think Boccaccio surprisingly was in his later life. Um, people only know the Decameron and think of him as a bad boy. Right. But at later in life under the influence of Petrarch, he becomes very interested in, in virtue. But uh, – the humanists were very – Petrarch in particular, but also Salatati and other humanists were impressed by Aquinas' distinction between, between the natural end of, and supernatural end of man. It's actually built into their whole curriculum because they had canon law and civil law. They had theology and philosophy. So they were used to thinking in terms of a natural end, this worldly end, and an and a end of the next life, immortality, and the enjoyment of the divine vision. So they um, they took responsibility for the human end, one might say, and they made it re- maybe too sharp a distinction between the human and the supernatural end of man. Uh, they saw that the traditional re- spiritual resources of European society weren't working in the late 14th century. People were going down and down, morally speaking, and they thought that the, the ancient world would give them the type of inspiration they needed to reconstruct the moral life of their societies. But I add, and it's very important to understand this, that they thought of the ideal period of Rome that they wanted to revive was the time of the Emperor Augustus. And you recall that's the time when Christ was born. Uh, sometimes it's called the incarnational argument for, the, for why Augustus is the best emperor because the incarnation happened during his time. <laughs> the fullness of time. Yes. So these humanists, as we now know, all of them uh, wanted to revive not just ancient pagan literature and philosophy but also uh, Christian, Christian thought, early patristic philosophy. Lorenzo Valo is a very famous humanist. Uh, wants to reform Christian theology, scholastic theology, on the model of patristic theology, have people talk more about the Bible, have people talk more about 
biblical interpretation and talk more about uh, behavior and less about abstruse theological issues. So there, there is, uh, as we now recognize, a Christian renaissance. The previous interpretation, which you still find when you read the New York Times or read a, a kind of high school textbook, has this, there's a sort of subtext that has, goes through the story of Western history, which is I call it the secularization thesis, right? That, that we started out in the Middle Ages as a religious society and gradually became more secular. So I've been fighting against this for quite a long time. Uh, first of all, by pointing out that the secular for the Middle Ages and the Renaissance and the early modern period does not mean re- non-religious, right? That's the usual interpretation today. People think secular means it's not religious, but in this period it means temporal as opposed to eternal. That was Augustine's understanding of the se- of the secular. The secular is temporary. It's this life. It's going to pass away, and then we have eternity, which is much more important. And the humanists understood this, and Renaissance philosophers in general saw things this way. So they weren't part of the secularization thesis, and uh, the research of the last 30 years has shown very clearly that the Italian Renaissance were fully on board with the project of recreating ancient the ancient world, including the ancient Christian world. Interesting. Well, this actually was part of the topic of a keynote address that you gave at Notre Dame a, a few years ago in 2016 at a conference entitled The Promise of the Vatican Library. You presented an appreciation of how the Renaissance was a period of this humanizing of Christianity, as you said, in which you highlighted the Renaissance engagement with non-Christian cultures and their wisdom traditions, as well as the practice of high-level interreligious dialogue that, as you said in your paper, has no medieval precedent that you were aware of. Are there specific lessons that we might draw uh, from Renaissance thinkers that might help us better to enter into dialogue with our contemporary globalized and pluralistic world? Well, I think so. I think um, what got me started in this actually was reflecting on how religions go bad. And of course, I'm mostly thinking about Islam in the modern world, which has Obviously, not many good people, but there's a, a very strong uh, corruption in the Islamic world. I guess I'm allowed to say that at Notre Dame. Maybe I'm not. <laughs> um, but Christianity, of course, has gone bad at various point, points of it, its life. I think that the conversion of Constantine to Christianity in the fourth century and the consequent rush of everyone to become Christian so they could climb the climb the uh, imperial hierarchy, imperial offices, magistracies was maybe not so good for the church. Uh, but the real, uh, the real example of Christianity going wrong is the period of the religious wars when you have so much Christian-on-Christian violence. It's really uh, unedifying. And I, I use this term praxis that I've really kind of abused slightly. It's a somewhat pretentious term. But what I mean by it is that there is an original message of a religion. And there is the way the religion is practiced by Christians and and Muslims and Buddhists, because this happens in every religion, mind you, right? Because there are are, um, Buddhists who go out and uh, we see this now in uh, Burma right now, right? There are Buddhists who, who are behaving badly and in ways that are utterly irreconcilable with, with their religious beliefs. 
So uh, it's, a, it's a common problem with religions. And so uh, I, my idea was that the Christian religion has actually ended up being in the 20th century, 21st century, a very uh, civil religion. It's a religion that, that exists easily with the civil society in which it lives. Uh, the Catholic Church teaches respect for the for the uh, civil authorities. It's a, generally speaking a positive influence on politics. Uh, and uh, it there is not the it, it doesn't it's not a it's not a, an explosive uh, that it was in the, in the age age of religion. Someone someone said uh, that Christianity before the age of religion was a social glue. Uh, in the 17th century, it becomes a social explosive that people are fighting each other, killing each other, slaughtering each other, martyring each other, uh, and doing really uh, unforgivable uh, or un- un- uh, undefendable, indefensible things to each other. So one of the results of this crisis, it's a long crisis uh, of century and a half really of religious wars, is that we get the Enlightenment. We get liberalism, which Patrick Deneen's been talking about, which tries to detach religion from politics. There's various strategies for dealing with this problem of religious war. One is to invent a civil religion. That was Spinoza's idea, that we should have a minimal civil religion of belief in God, morality, and that's it. Some people thought we need belief in God, morality, and immortality of the soul. Other people like Locke are saying we just need to have a strong separation between what happens in religion, what happens in the state. The two should go their separate ways. So this is one reason why the secularization hypothesis caught on in the West, because people embrace that separation of church and state as a good thing. Perhaps it is. But what they're overlooking is that the church continues to reflect on these problems as well. The church has reflected on the experience of the religious wars and offers its own solutions, its own counsels. So the presentation of Christianity essentially as an obstacle to modernity is one that I think is a false, false narrative. Uh, And if you look at the Enlightenment itself, as some people are now doing, uh, the Enlightenment has radical figures who want to destroy Christianity, who, who think that religion is part of the problem, not the solution. But the more numerous people in the Enlightenment, more numerous thinkers, uh, are, want to civilize Christianity, right? They want, they want to return in some way to the vision of the founder, uh, but also to come to grips with uh, the sort of problems that a society faces when religions become, have political power, and that's where you get Catholic social doctrine. As Ulrich Lehner and some other people have shown, the Catholic social doctrine of the late 19th century does not appear in a vacuum. It comes after a long period of reflection by Christians on the relationship between the church and state, but also the responsibility of Christians to, to the larger society. I'm not sure if I'm making myself uh, clear, but I think it, it's something that that historians really should pay attention to is how you know, what it is about the, the, the social situation, political situation, uh, the educational system that allows certain religions at certain times to go bad and to really deny the beliefs of the founder of the religion, but also what can be done to counteract that. And I think the study of humanities is one thing. 
Uh, if you study Buddhism, for example, uh, the Mahayana form of Buddhism is much less corrupt, generally speaking, than the Theravada form. And one reason for that is the Mahayana is in touch with the great literary tradition of Sanskrit and is civilized by its encounter with uh, a great literary tradition which isn't necessarily Buddhist, right? Whereas Theravada is much more, much more impoverished in terms of its culture. It's more involved in its own uh, religious sources. That's really the basis of education of monks. They never read anything else but what's in the Theravada sources. And there's much more fanaticism among Theravada Buddhists than among Mahayana Buddhists. That's just an example. Uh, I'm not sure a Buddhist scholar would agree with me. This is my own impression from my own studies. And we're going to have a conference on this subject quite soon so we can hash some of these things out. But I really believe that the humanities, literature, philosophy are important for religions to be able to reflect, uh, to avoid fanaticism and to avoid um, too much um, intensity and to have a little broader view of the place of, of religious, uh, the religion in, in history. Christianity has actually been always very good at that. It's one of the strengths of Christianity is that it's always been relatively open to non-Christian cultures. And this, I think, is one area in which the Renaissance can also set, set an example is that the, the humanists of the Renaissance are very interested in non, non-Christian cultures, not that they were not Christian, uh, not that they wanted to cr- change Christian doctrine, uh, but they were very interested in how the wisdom of Christ and Christianity related to these other forms of religion, partly because they were great students of classical antiquity, they knew all about paganism. They were quite firm that Christianity was superior to paganism. There's very few people who were on the other side until the 18th century Enlightenment, but the humanists are very clear that, he, that Christianity was a, was a better religion, had won out over paganism because of its of its moral superiority to paganism. But they also wanted to know about how to think about Christianity in relation to Judaism, how to think about Christianity in relation to Islam, and what they called the Brahmani, which means the Hindus or the Brahmins of of, of India, and they they were willing to say like some modern Catholic uh, uh, ecumenists, including Benedict XVI, that Christianity could learn from these, these religious traditions. And uh, it, would, um, it would give a kind of perspective on the truths of Christianity that would be beneficial to Christian belief. Well, another example of the humanizing of Christianity that you presented in your talk was a discussion of how Renaissance thinkers strongly advocated the inculcation of virtues in educational practice. You made reference to this kind of earlier in uh, Petrarch's kind of, you know, uh, focus on virtue as the way to renew society. We, of course, think of modern works like our own permanent senior distinguished research fellow Alistair McIntyre's 1981 book After Virtue as kicking off the moral theory of virtue ethics. But how were the schools of the Renaissance themselves a real-life example of this idea? Well, uh, Alistair McIntyre's book is very important for me. When I first read it almost immediately after it came out and it made me um, very aware of the, the damage that had been done by certain Enlightenment thinkers to our moral universe and how there were things that needed to be recovered from the pre-modern moral universe. Uh, 
uh, particularly the inadequacy of utilitarianism and motivism as ways of discovering moral obligations and also simply as ways of learning how to be good. Uh, a set of rules is not uh, going to make you a better person necessarily. You need example, you need encouragement, you need upbringing and habit, and all these things that Alistair pointed out in the uh, After Virtue book uh, became an uh, important part of my outlook, I think. And so one thing that one reason I got so excited about virtue ethics is because I realized here's a period where they actually tried uh, the Renaissance. They actually tried to enact virtue ethics. They tried to bring it to life. Uh, it wasn't just a theory. In the modern academy, of course, there are a lot of people who do virtue ethics as, a, as an academic, uh, academic approach to ethics, uh, like utilitarianism or deontology or Kantianism. Uh, but in the Renaissance, it was actually a social practice to try to make people virtuous. And, you know, if you went to a German town in the 16th century, you would find the uh, there were laws that the young uh, nobles of the town had to take a course in Aristotle's ethics. One of my students did some interesting research on this. And there were courses being offered uh, throughout the Italian Renaissance, usually feast day courses, which are kind of informal courses open to the general public, not for students, where people could go and listen to lectures on Cicero's famous text on duties, which is one of the great texts on virtue ethics and Aristotle's ethics and Aristotle's politics. These were texts that were um, basis of, of kind of civil education uh, that went beyond pre-professional education. And this was one of the, the key... I think contributions of humanism is they were trying to start a new type of education that would not simply be pre-professional or theological relate to the next life, but would actually have to would help people in their in their ordinary occupations. And, and you know, they have, there are texts on family life. There are texts on on how to live as a good lawyer or a good doctor how to bring virtue into your life, if, if you will. Uh, and their uh, educational system was built around the reading of classical texts, but they were texts that were carefully chosen to, to illustrate moral issues. For example, they read C Caesar's Gallic Wars, right, which I remember reading in 10th grade in high school and hating every moment of it because it was taught as an exercise in how to learn Latin, uh, and they taught it that way too. They needed to learn Latin as well, but but they also understood that 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 Caesar's Gallic Wars presented moral questions, and one was was Caesar a tyrant, and they would debate that in in their in their discussions. Uh, and what what is a tyrant, and and is a tyrant someone who simply breaks breaks the law or, or violates the constitution? That's the Roman view, or is tyranny something deeper? Is it is it pride, as St. Gregory the Great says, or is it disordered soul, as Plato says? So they're, they're thinking about the reform of their societies, uh, and they're trying to bring these ancient texts to bear on, on these very deep issues of, of uh, moral formation. It sounds very similar to the project, you know, with Mortimer Adler and the Paideia Project and the great books of the Western world. Yeah, there are lots of analogies with what we call character education now. Uh, we, study, we study the classical text for the purpose of, of, of character formation. 
Uh, and um, it was first-order reading, what we call first-order reading. In other words, people read these texts and wanted to know whether they were true and what, what I can learn from them. They didn't read them the way philologists read them to see whether the text is correct or not or the way modern uh, theorists read them to see if they can prove their theory through the uh, this very formalistic ways of reading text. They were really engaged with the text in, in what I think of as the humanistic way, their transformative text, that they take the lump and clay of the human soul and try to direct it in, into habits of virtue. Well, Professor James Hankins, thank you very much for spending time with us today. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for, for having me. Thank you to Professor Hankins. You can learn more about his projects like the E. Tati Renaissance Library in the show notes. This is the final regular season episode of the 2017-18 academic year, but we will be bringing you special episodes throughout the summer. Subscribe to Ethics and Culture Cast so that you can always get the latest episodes by visiting ethicscenter.nd.edu slash podcast. We would love your feedback. Please give us a review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts, and email your suggestions to cecpodcast at nd.edu. Our theme music is I Don't Know by Grapes, licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution License. We'll see you next time on Ethics and Culture Cast. Until then, make good decisions.